when I got to the CIA, I started to see human trafficking everywhere. And I assumed that somebody somewhere was solving this problem, right? Somebody had that ball and was running it to the end zone, right? Because narcotics information, pretty clear where that goes. Terrorism information, pretty clear where that goes. Weapons proliferation, it's got a place to go. Human trafficking information, just couldn't find any place. So we started working through the system. I bounced all over the intelligence community, law enforcement, military, trying to find where we would put this information. And ultimately it was all for naught. We were told that that wasn't a mandatory reporting requirement and there's no mission set to back up the collection of that information. And that made me curious. And so I ultimately decided that it was a problem I was gonna take a stab at trying to solve. Is that much of a, is that, that's not much of a change for you, right? My name is Kerry Kite. I used to load bombs in the Air Force and now I'm a writer, a filmmaker, and an entrepreneur. Through using the post 9-11 GI Bill to go to college, working hourly jobs to pay the bills, and freelancing my way into a career, I've studied what it takes to successfully transition from service to civilian. And that study has become a conversation. On this podcast, I speak to other veterans, successful artists and entrepreneurs about their transition, what they did well, where they failed, what they learned, and most importantly, how they applied their skills. Episode 58 features Nick McKinley, a former Air Force pararescueman, CIA operative, and a two-time tech entrepreneur. He is the founder of Deliver Fund, where he has pioneered scalable technical solutions aimed at protecting society from child predators. Welcome. This is Veteran Made. All right. We are live on Riverside. We've waited the appropriate amount of time, as I have learned. Nick McKinley, welcome to Veteran Made. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. I'm very excited for this episode. I'm going to gonna break one of one of my rules, my, my big rule, which is this is not a podcast where cool guys come on and tell cool guys stories. But uh, I do I do want to to dive in a little bit more um, kind of deeply and, and from the beginning with you and really get the entire story leading up to uh, Deliver Fund and, and the founding and then the work that you've been doing and then what you're going to be doing here into the future. So I would love for folks to get the background kind of as we go um, and, and, and jump right into to, to where, where did you grow up? Ah, so I, uh, I actually am an orphan. I was orphaned when I was like 18 months old, uh, you know, 24 months old, somewhere in there, uh, and started life in Kansas and then got taken to Wyoming by the, uh, child services. I don't know what, what it was called. Right. Got taken to, to Wyoming and, uh, they put me up for adoption and I ended up getting adopted by an amazing family out of Casper, Wyoming, who then promptly took me to Montana and I got to grow up in Montana, which, which is incredibly idyllic. You don't realize that when you're there, though. It's like, ah, it's a small town. I got to get out of here. I got to go see the world. And little did I realize that, no, actually, I was, I was pretty fortunate to to get the privilege of growing up in Montana. What um, what what was growing up like for you there? What kind of what kind of things did you do? Did you live the full on outdoors life as a kid? Hundred uh, percent. If you're in Montana, and especially you know pre-internet. And you didn't, uh, you weren't into the outdoors. You weren't into everything from hunting, fishing, skiing. Uh, I, I was a, uh, a rock climber in high school, uh, just getting into all that stuff. If you weren't into that, you were going to be bored out of your mind. So spent most of my time outdoors, skipped way more school to go skiing than I should have. 
but yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's a good place to grow up for that reason because it, it forces you to, to solve problems because it's so rural. So if your Jeep breaks down on the side of the road, which happened at a 1976 Jeep CJ seven, when I was in high school as an example, so your Jeep breaks down on the side of the road, somewhere between, you know, big timber and Bozeman, it's, it's you, that's who you have to rely on because it's not like you can walk to the nearest gas station or something. I mean, you're hours away from anything by driving. Uh, so that was just kind of one of the cool things about growing up in Montana was you, you learned a level of self-reliance and, and not only did you learn it, it was expected of you by the grownups and the people, uh, within your peer group. So it's uh, a good training ground. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up, I grew up in San Diego and we used to go, North to Yosemite, we used to go to Big Bear, we used to go to Mammoth, we used to go to all, kind of all those places. And and there was one thing that we were always kind of prepared and capable leaving the house when you're going to do those things. And obviously, a ton of stuff at the beach as well. And there's civilization there, North County, San Diego. It's not like it, it's super remote, but I was struck when I moved to the Midwest where it's a little bit flat. There's outer belts and kind of like everything is is just like there for you that mm-hmm. that. Well, you know, not in a bad way, just in a different way. People like aren't as prepared for the kind of potential uh, pitfalls and just different things that you can experience in in the mountains or on the coast, you know, out, out in the water. Uh, and right. it's just, it was a, kind of an interesting thing about out west. Like you kind of grow up capable, you grow up ready. Right. And there's a culture that that not only encourages that, but expects that of you, uh, which I think is also... Uh, it's a real blessing when you get to grow up in that environment and, and you don't, but you just don't realize it. And so kids in rural America listening to this, uh, you're luckier than you think. Absolutely. Absolutely. My wife and I were just talking about that, uh, a couple nights ago, we've been in fortunate, fortunate situations that were unfortunate for other folks that, that we were kind of, you know, capable and ready to, to help. And that's just something that we treat as, uh, that capability is a responsibility to, mm-hmm. to, to kind of continue that discipline to make sure that that uh, the next time something like that should happen that 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 kind of we're the ones that are ready to go. Did you think about the military at all when you were um, when you were in high school or or was it a, a last oh, yeah. minute decision? Oh no, it was it was the decision that I had made probably sometime in my sophomore year. I decided I was going into the military, and uh, despite a lot of people trying to talk me out of it. Uh, and I think that's mainly because they didn't understand what the what going into the military was going to bring to the table for me personally, and they just thought they were looking out for me. But in it was something I always wanted to do. Originally, I thought I wanted to be in law enforcement, and there was probably some cop shows in the uh, you know in the early '90s that influenced that, and then it turned into uh, well, you remember when the movie Navy Seals came out with Charlie Sheen? I mean you can't not watch that as a, as a young high school kid in the nineties and go, I want to do that. And I actually yeah. originally thought I wanted to be a seal until I found out about the air force pararescue teams. And then just well, that, that was what I wanted to do because I wanted to be a, a, a seal corpsman, but the Navy couldn't guarantee me that I would get a position as a corpsman, uh, were I to make it into the seal teams. They're kind of were just telling me that you you're going to do what they tell you to do. And if if you're going to be a machine gunner, then that's what you're going to be. And so because the pararescue teams could guarantee that obviously I was going to get all this medical training, 
guarantee me combat dive guarantee me halo school it was it was the the route that i chose and this this was pre 9 11 i mean when did you graduate from high school graduated in 96 uh so it was technically peacetime but a lot of people don't realize that uh, the military was still engaged in Operation Northern Watch, Operation Southern Watch, Operation Olive Branch, Desert Fox. Uh, I mean, the first time I saw the combat, and we'll define that as like in, you know, receiving uh, incoming enemy rounds, was in 1998, late 1998. So that was a from the pararescue team perspective, we were involved in all of those different op operations. And in many of them, we were really the only ground element, right? Might be there with a couple combat controllers, but it was really just Air Force was really the only people on the ground. And we, we usually had a Mew or, you know, so a Marine Expeditionary Unit or a Naval Special Warfare Unit or a bunch of Rangers somewhere who was supposed to respond as a QRF or something to go wrong. But we were the we were the ground element and, and that was, I mean, that was all the way back in, in the nineties. So when nine 11 happened, combat deployments weren't a new thing for me. I'd already, I'd already been through multiple combat deployments. And my, my proctor in doc was a controller in the nineties and he just, he absolutely loved it. And just, just talked about, just talked about those years, um, you know, with just very fond memories of, of, of all of that kind of before everything ramped up. I'm curious, how did you hear about Air Force Special Operations? How did you hear about pararescues? You mentioned Navy SEALs and, you know, I mean, even up until 10 years ago, I mean, you know, AFSOC was not advertising themselves as an option, no. um, you know, 20 years ago. So how did you hear about pararescue? Was it a recruiter? Did you do your own research? Did you go to the library? Like, how did that happen? I'm curious. So it was a confluence of events. It was, I decided I wanted to be in the military. And so my mom went and got some recruiting brochures from all the different, you know, military branches. And, uh, and then I'd gone in to go talk to the Navy recruiters about trying to be a SEAL. And the Air Force recruiter, pretty smart guy, saw probably in my, my, my youthful arrogance that, uh, that he could entice me with not only the fact that I was going to be guaranteed in these different schools and these different things that I wanted to do, but also from a, from a statistical perspective. And so for all you bro vets that are going to get in the comments and start saying, that's not true. We're talking math here from a statistical perspective, air force pararescue was the hardest, had the highest attrition rate. And so the, the air force recruiter, I remember I was leaving the, uh, the Navy recruiting office and he approached me and said, Hey, have you, have you ever thought about going into the air force? And, and I told him I'd, I'd thought about it, but I, I just hadn't, hadn't done enough research yet. And let's keep in mind this pre-internet. So research on these different, uh, on these different career fields was pretty difficult to do actually. And so he said, Oh, we got this thing called pararescue. He's like that, ah, but you probably wouldn't make it anyway. And I was like, what you tell me I can't make something right. And I was in his office for probably the next hour. And then I got home and my mom had a, a bunch of brochures on the counter. And one of them was the Air Force Pararescue brochure. I, I'll never forget. It had Mike Maltz on the, uh, on the cover of it. Uh, he later became my supervisor before he died. And he, uh, and so I saw the, the Pararescue brochure and I'm looking at that. I'm looking at the uh, Force Recon one and the 
the armies, I think it was the Rangers and the seals and, and really trying to make a decision. And, and it was only then when I went back to talk to the air force recruiter that he was telling me about, you know, what pararescue did. I watched a little video. And I think from that point I was hooked. That's cool. You know, with all these special operators writing all these books over the course of the last couple of decades, I'm surprised an Air Force recruiter hasn't written a book about their pickup artist techniques, because that's kind of what it feels <laughs> like they what it feels like they use, yeah. you know, is they just like they have all these super uh, effective techniques to, to get certain certain guys and gals in the in the door and, and, and sign on the dotted line. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time on like time in service as as a PJ, but um, you, you, you kind of dove in pretty quickly and deployed several, I mean, quite a few times, um, as pararescue, what, what was that time like? And then what did that transition look like briefly kind of, I guess, out of the military and then into, um, in, into the agency? So pararescue, again, I still say it's, it's the best kept secret in the special operations world. So once I got in, uh, so I did 14 deployments as a PJ and that's just because I was a young single guy and I wanted to be, I wanted to be in the mix. I wanted to be overseas doing my job. And so I, you had a married guy who say had a Christmas deployment. I would volunteer to take that deployment, not because I'm some great guy. I just saw that as an opportunity to get back into the mix. And so I just, I would just constantly deploy as much as I possibly could. And then because you have so many currencies, you have to stay, you have to stay up on as a PJ. Uh, you're constantly in a training cycle when you're home. So I was always taking advantage of those training cycles as well and, and getting into all of the the different training that I could get myself into. And as I was started doing that and, and learning more, I was actually deployed uh, right after September 11th. There's a group of people who went into the Northern Iraq area and uh, it was, uh, there was a bunch, it was a, it was kind of the first of the, the joint task force environments, right? I mean, we, you really couldn't figure out who was what, and there were some agency folks who were there and, um, I, I didn't actually know how that worked at the time, but I know now that they were actually some JSOC dudes who had been detailed over to the agency who then were detailed back to JSOC. Uh, so you know, stand, standard government operation, but f we all thought, oh, well, these are some like, these are some agency guys and the stuff they were doing was pretty hairy, super small teams running out sometimes by themselves, sometimes with as many as like four or six people, they were going out doing ops almost every day. And one of the things that I was a little frustrated by, and I understand why now that I'm a little older and I like to think slightly more mature. Um, but I was frustrated when I was in the military with the amount of, of just sitting around waiting for something to happen. And I was a little bit jealous of these agency guys who are out every single day doing real world operations. And I wanted a piece of that. And that's kind of what, what made me start thinking about pursuing, pursuing that route. Were there any, uh, air force dudes at the time, uh, there or was it like was it like did you what was the interaction like or was it you kind of watching from afar or watching closely removed and 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 were you able to interact with any of those dudes and ask some questions and kind of like get get in there and understand a little bit better or was it still kind of uh mystified for you and then you're like all right how am i going to pursue that 
It was pretty murky. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they, I mean, great guys. They were, uh, they, they tried to mentor us along a little bit, but maybe some of those guys were Air Force guys. Maybe they weren't. I don't know. Um, all I know is they were JSOC detailees. So they could have been from the 2-4, you know, green, blue, you know, pick a unit. I, I have no idea. But they were, uh, they were really good. Uh, very, very competent. It was very clear they were good at what it is that they did. They really tried to be as helpful as possible to us. So a relatively young PJ, I think at this point, uh, I had been a, a PJ for probably right around four years uh, at, outside of the pipeline. So actually, you know, had the bray on my head for, for right around four years. So very, very young, very inexperienced. And they really spent their time trying to make us successful in our, in our operations, which is something I'll never forget because those guys were the top of the stack. I mean, they were kind of the best the country had to offer. And then here they were taking their time to help me and some of my teammates be better with our jobs, j- just in little things like, Hey, you might want to think about carrying your gear a little bit different. Uh, you might want to think about, you know, uh, snapping that rifle on target slightly differently. I mean, they were, they were really invested in trying to make us successful and trying to make us the best warriors that they could. And I, I just thought that was pretty cool. Now what they were doing, I have I still to this day have no idea. Um, all I know is they were out every single day and, and we, we did a couple of, of real world operations while I was on that deployment, but it was far from something every day. It was more like maybe one or two a month. And, and that, that was really the thing that, that caught my interest in, in pursuing that. Uh, as you look back on that now, uh, do you think you were attracted to not just the mission and like the elite execution on their end, but then that kind of elite application, that kind of elite communication that very few people probably could be able to kind of pull off both of those things. Or was it just the action at that point that you were like, yep, I want to go, I want to go do that uh, kind of work. I would like to tell you that it was some like broader philosophical epiphany that I had, but that would just be a lie. It was just the fact that they were doing things every day. It was the action piece. I wanted to go, I wanted to go participate in that. And, and the, the thing about also pararescue is that if you're going to work as a PJ, something has gone wrong. That's the whole reason you exist. Uh, and a lot of what they d- were doing, I assume, uh, and I learned this as I got to the agency, a lot of what they were doing was probably keeping us out of fights. So you could actually say that probably part of the reason why that deployment was more boring than I wanted it to be was because they were good at their job. And the, I think the thing a lot of people don't understand is that the, the the military is a is a action arm that is really only goes to work when the intelligence community has failed at their job. Now I'm not I'm talking very broadly here, right? Obviously, the the special ops community and the intelligence community work hand in hand, but but when big military is going to work, it's because usually there is a diplomatic and intelligence failure, you know, either one or both. And I didn't really realize that at the time, but I kind of had a sense of it that, well, if, if my job is to respond to a crisis, 
who actually prevents that crisis in the first place? And, and so that's, that's, I think really the thing that attracted me the most. And then also as a PJ, I think a lot of people who are not familiar with pararescue don't realize that your predominant mission as a PJ is to operate in extremely small teams, right? Sometimes just as few as two. Rarely are you ever operating on your own, but you will operate with just one other person or on your own embedded in a larger team. So the whole concept of, of going somewhere with, with a very small footprint is something I was very comfortable with. Where some of the other special operators on the task force, uh, they would look at some of the stuff they were doing. You're going out by themselves, getting inserted in a two-man team and getting picked up a week later. They looked at that as uh, as extremely risky because they were used to operating in this this large group of superior firepower. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. What? So how did you action those thoughts as you were, did you like, all right, I got to put a package together. Mm-hmm. Um, did you think I'm going to get out of the military and then go, then go like, how, how did you, how did, how did you action your, your thoughts and your kind of desires after that deployment? I just started asking around. It was, it was really that simple. I connected with a, a retired pararescueman who was working at JPRA at the time and had a couple of conversations with him and he showed me some places to work. And unfortunately I can't get into the details of exactly how I did that, but I just, I just started knocking on doors. I figured the worst thing that could happen is people could tell me no. And then eventually one person wanted to support me and connected me with another person who connected me with another person. And then I'm getting phone calls asking if I'd be interested in joining a, a, a classified program. Uh, that was uh, it was a kinetic program being run out of a specific place in the Middle East. <laughs> Sorry to be so cagey. It's just the publication review board says what I can and can't say. And I was like, yeah, that sounds a, that sounds awesome. Let's go do that. And I uh, went to the went to the tryout. It was about a 30 day tryout and was one of the guys standing at the end of it. And I was deployed with uh, from the time I tried out to the time I got on their airplane to deploy was about 45 days. So, so they moved pretty quick, but the requirement when I started at the agency was for, for the unit and the, the thing that I started in, you had to have a minimum of six years of special ops experience. So as a PJ who at the time had 10 years of active duty, total active duty time, we got to keep in mind the the pipeline was about 24 months of that. So as a, as a 10 year PJ, I actually only had eight years of pararescue experience. So I, I only made their cut by two years. And then, and then if you had that, that training, you had to have a certain number of deployments under your belt. I think you only had to have two or three combat deployments under your belt. But if you had all those things, then you'd get picked up for a couple of interviews, did those interviews. And then I got whisked away, um, to uh, actually a really cool facility that I had no idea even existed uh, and spent 30 days in their tryout process and managed to make it. And they deployed me about a month and a half later. That's awesome. So um, one one through line on this podcast, and and I I think it's kind of true for you throughout your, your career and into the work that you're doing now is, you know, I'm big on building relationships with other human beings, not necessarily just building a network, 
right? Mm-hmm. Which I know you probably have some nuanced thoughts on because you are building a network, right, of, of certain things. But in terms of that kind of interpersonal and and uh, professional, interprofessional opportunities, it's really about building relationships with other human beings. And so even going back to this time where you're saying you're going around knocking on doors, asking some questions, like, were you aware of what, what your reputation as a PJ was? Did your reputation as a, as a PJ obviously affected the way that people were willing to kind of, Hey, yeah, go knock on this door now or here, go talk to this person. Like, were you aware at the time or were you just kind of knocking on the doors and, and trying to figure it out? Oh, I was hyper aware of my reputation as a PJ. And, um, that was on one end of the spectrum or the other, depending on who you talk to. Sure. Uh, there are some people who in the pararescue community really didn't like me. And the fact that they didn't like me, I considered that a badge of honor. There were other people who, uh, you know, saw the drive, but, but, you know, rightfully thought I needed a little more maturity. And then there were, there were people who were my biggest fans. And I think that if you, if you as a, as an individual are comfortable with your reputation and you are aware of what it is, then, then it, it shouldn't be stopping you unless of course it's a bad reputation and you are hyper reflective on why that might be. But if you are comfortable with your reputation, then any place that you go that says, well, we don't like you because of your reputation, that is all the information that you need to know that that is not the right fit for you. So it was very much reputation that got me to that tryout because the the CIA does some pretty extreme due diligence. Uh, One of the things that people don't realize is that they do their own clearance process. So you've got a TS in the military. That's cute. They're going to start from scratch and they're going to completely redo the whole thing. And then they're going to hook you up to polygraphs. And it's not the it's not the CI poly. It's the lifestyle poly, which is uh, which is rather invasive. So it, they do their due diligence just like just like anybody else would if you were going to any other unit. And and apparently the, the people who were fans of Nick McKinley were the types of people whose opinions counted to them. So when I left, uh, when I left the Air Force, I really had two different groups of people. I had the groups of people. Uh, one of them is actually the the CSAC now, uh, Ray Colon Lopez, right? One of the one of the greatest leaders you will ever work with, and he he was trying to help me accomplish my personal goals, even though that meant that I was leaving pararescue. And then on the other hand, I had people who told me I was a traitor in jumping ship because I was leaving pararescue and I'll, we'll leave their names out of it. But that that's two different types of, of people looking at things through two different lenses. Uh, and so because of the rays of the world and them liking my reputation, I was able to actually extend that into the places that I could have the most impact. How did you and how, how do you manage that? level and kind of, of self-awareness, because I think elite performers, high performers have the exact kind of reputation that you're talking about, right? Which is going to be pretty, pretty binary. And Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of times people, while they can perform at a very elite level and perform at a very high level, can't actually handle the self-awareness around a reputation, kind of like you're talking about, and even removing Mm -hmm. it from like a 
a, a buzzword like reputation, but just thinking about it in terms of understanding how you move through the world and interact with other people in the world, right? Like mm -hmm. how, how did you at the time and how do you now manage that and, and utilize it and leverage it? And are there any techniques that you have? Are there, are there any times where, where you have like self-doubt about any of that thing and any of those kinds of things and, and how do you approach it? I think, I think to kind of take those in reverse, self-doubt is near constant. And if you don't have self-doubt, then you're probably approaching arrogance or narcissism and, and you might want to really start doing some self-reflection. Uh, if you don't have some doubt, then you're either doing something really easy or you are not, you, you don't have the proper level of appreciation for, for the endeavor that you're about to bar embark upon. And I, I think that just getting comfortable with the self-doubt, uh, I mean, you know, from the, uh, from your days at Indoc that every single time you, you go through a day at Indoc, right? You go through a day in the selection process, you're wondering whether or not you were going to fail something that day. Cause you always had the thing that you were good at and the thing that you were not good at. Well, the question was, are you continuing to, to bolster your lesser strength while also maintaining the things that you're good at, right? Your strengths. And so I kind of look at it as, uh, and I actually stole this from a, a really good firearms instructor named JD Patinsky, where you don't have a weakness. You have strengths and you have lesser strengths. So the question is, are you going to bring your lesser strengths up to the level of your strengths or are you going to consider them weaknesses and just say, oh, well, I'm not good at running, so that's my excuse for not performing at the level that I want to perform at. I'm not good at pull-ups, and so therefore I'm going to use that as my excuse. And I think that there are there are so many people who I went through like PJ selection with, and same thing in all the different selections I went through at the at the CIA, who were faster, smarter, and stronger than I could ever even hope to be, but they didn't have the the work ethic and the mental resilience and tenacity to, to keep pushing through. They were what had got them to those points at that, at, at least to the point that they either quit or failed was their, their raw talent, their sheer talent where I didn't really have the talent to fall back on. I mean, anybody who knows me well, will will be the first to tell you, I'm not a very talented person, but I will try my darndest to outwork you. And I think that's the difference is, is, are you like, so let me give you an example. And this is also for people who don't really understand the way that the, the military special ops world works. Let's say you be, uh, we'll take me, you're a pararescue man. So that means that you showed up to your unit with a maroon beret on your head day one. Well, that doesn't mean you've accomplished anything. It means you met the bare minimum standard to be in that spot on the earth. So you have nowhere to go but up. So the work is just beginning. So you go through, you know, pararescue selection and pararescue school, one of the one of the hardest things in the world to do in the military at least, and then that's just the bare minimum standard. You now have the rest of the mountain to climb. And I think if you look at your whole life that way, it, instead of being like, "Oh, I got the maroon beret, I have arrived. I have nothing more to do now." Right. That's the difference. And and so the continuing to work and saying, where am I really weak? 
And if you're surrounding yourself with the, with the right people, they'll show you because you'll go on the run with uh, a guy that I used to work with, uh, Dirty Mike, if you're listening, and and he will just crush me or, uh, you know, you'll you'll go to the range with another guy and, and they'll crush you. And so you're all instead of saying, oh, well, that person's just good at shooting and that person's good at running. It's saying, OK, what can I learn from that person who's good at shooting that can help me attain the level that they've attained? What can I learn from that person who's good at running? to help me attain the level they've attained? What can I learn from that person who's really good at the medical and, and really good at the academics so that I can attain the level that they've attained? And so fully realizing that you never arrive, you just take on harder and harder and harder tasks. Yeah, I love I love that. Chuck Noll, uh, old defensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers used to say that all the way. You always say never arrive was, was kind of like his mantra. And it's like, you, if, if you have that mindset, um, you know, and, and this is true for, for guys and gals transitioning out, right? Like when you're transitioning out of the military and you want to get into a different field, do not surround yourself with other people who did what you did. Surround yourself with other people who are really, really good already at the thing that you want to do so that you can go um, apprentice under them and work with them and understand what it's going to take to get to where you want to be. Rather than defaulting to, oh, you know, I went through selection. Oh, I got a, 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 you know, a green beret or a maroon beret or a scarlet beret or whatever it was and deployed a couple of times or I did this and, and be like, then I, I can do this other thing. It's like, well, no, go study, go find out what it is that they're doing. Go find out what it is that the things that you're not good at, that you're going to need to get good at in order to do that thing that you want to transition into. Or you'll find out like, hey, I don't actually want to put in any of that work to get good at those things. So maybe I should adjust what it is that I'm thinking about, about doing and approaching. And that, and that's okay. Like you, nobody, we, we don't need every single person to climb to the top of Everest. We don't need every single person to create reusable rockets that go into space. I mean, there's, there's a, there's room for everybody, uh, but just make a conscious choice about what it is that you want and then design your life around that. So personally, I look at it as every five years, I should, so I should reinvent myself every five years. So if somebody who knew me five years before had not seen me or talked to me, sees me five years later, they would hardly recognize me as a professional. Hopefully I would be a better version of the same person, but as a professional, they would hardly recognize me because I had transitioned and reinvented myself into the next step. And I've tried to do that roughly every four to five years, really since, uh, since I was a young PJ and, and it's, it's given me a pretty cool adventure of life and allowed me to have a massive amount of impact while also at the same time, never being afraid to, to, to really swing for the fences and go for the biggest thing I could find. I had a, a, a young PJ cause I get a lot of folks reaching out to me and, uh, they kind of want mentorship as they get out or whatnot. And he was looking at different degree programs. And I said, did you apply to every single Ivy league institution? Oh no, no, I can't really do that. And, and he's like, well, how did you get into Harvard? I applied. Yeah. That's how I got in. Yeah. It's, 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 literally that simple. Um, I got denied the first time that I applied, uh, to the CIA because I had applied to the wrong job. They just said, sorry, uh, based on your psychological profiling, you would be terrible at this job. And they have the data to, they know what they're doing. 
And they said, you'd be, you'd be terrible at this job. Uh, we're not interested in you. So I didn't say, okay, well, I wanted to go work there. So I guess I'm just going to, I'm going to stop. No, it's like, oh, well, I, I took that feedback, internalized it, did a bunch more research to figure out exactly what the heck they were talking about, and then reapplied for the thing that I was a good fit for. Yeah, it's like the default is action, right? Like the default is 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 moving forward and 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 tinkering, and you know, it's like that was when I when I got out of the military. You know, goal was to go to film school. You know, get a screenwriting degree, be a, a, a you know indie writer director, and and then you know direct all these films and then do. Those. But I I I kept moving and I kept trying new things and then discovering that I actually did really enjoy other aspects of the industry. Mm-hmm. Enough to just keep experimenting a little bit and then, you know, keep keep honing those other skills that I, I knew that I wanted to build. But then you, you kind of find yourself building all of these different skills and actually taking yourself in a different direction. But it's you taking yourself in that direction because you are moving towards something that you're you're trying, that you're tinkering with, that you're that you're discovering, you know, kind of about yourself that like, hey, I, I'm interested in this. I have aptitude for this. And I could, mm-hmm. hey, make a career out of this and kind of carve these little things out. I think, I think people tend to think a little bit too uh, narrowly about, well, my goal was this. And so if, if I don't hit that goal, then I failed. It's like, well, no, the, the goal is just kind of a guidepost to send you in the direction that you need to go. And I, I think, we, I think we, we idolize goals a little too much by, by, by making them the end all be all instead of making them what they are, which is just another opportunity to, to keep moving. Yeah. Goals are just ridgelines. They're just the next one that you can see. And when you get to the top of that one, take it in and start back down the hill because you can now see the next ridgeline. I would never have known that I needed to build deliver fund. And we've just, just released some technology on September 1st on this, this app that I, I never, never would in a million years would I've imagined I would build the first counter human trafficking application to put into the hands of everybody. You 20, 22 year old Nick McKinley was going to go be a PJ forever until he learned some new things and thought, oh, that would be, that would be an interesting path. I think I'll go try to maybe figure that out. Can I do it as a PJ? No, can't really do it as a PJ. So, okay, I'm going to have to leave pararescue. Am I, am I okay with that? Yes. And then move to the next thing. And then when I was in, when I was at the CIA, it's like, oh, someone's going to do something about this human trafficking problem. Well, who's doing something? I, uh, I can't get into detail about everything that I did to try to find out what's going on in the government. But I talked to, I talked to everything from high ranking political officials and cabinet members all the way down to street level law enforcement officers and academics at universities trying to figure out what was happening on the human trafficking problem. And then once I felt like I had a good handle on it, read probably 30 books on the issue, I started to crystallize about, oh, this is actually where I can make an impact with my skills and network. I'm going to go do that. But if you even look at what we what we do at Deliver Fund in the fight against human trafficking, what we were doing 10 years ago or what we set out to do 10 years ago and what we do today are completely different things because we have learned, we've iterated, we've pivoted, we have figured out how to do things better, faster and cheaper. Uh, and that's ultimately, I think, what leads to success. And I've got a plan for that that goes all the way out to 2030. And I know what the next four books I'm going to write are. I like, right. So it's, it's thinking really long term, but not getting married to those outcomes. 
not saying, you know, and this is where I get a lot of military people who, who transition out of the military, they get really focused on the numbers on a check. And there's kind of two things that I believe you should never chase, right? At least for men. And that's money and women. If you pursue goals, those other things come. Uh, if you, if you look at, I think Elon Musk, and I know it's, it's cliche to talk about him, but I do think that he's the best example that we have in our generation. He never set out to be extremely wealthy. If you look all the way back to X.com, which ironic how things come around, uh, he never lost sight of that. And, and the deal that he did with PayPal, and it was, it was always about trying to find the best solution to a problem, which happened to make him a bunch of money. And then currently with SpaceX and Tesla, they have nothing to do with him just making a bunch of money. It has to do with, with solving a problem. And then as you reach that ridge line, then he goes to the next ridge line and the next ridge line. And ultimately, maybe he does have a mountaintop that he's set his, his sights on, right? So like with SpaceX, it's Mars. But what happens is if he reaches Mars? Do we really think that that guy's just going to like sit in the lazy boy and, and read books and pet his dog? No. He'll start, he'll start figuring out how to get to the next ridge line and figure out what that is. And I think that's where the self-reflection really comes in. Uh, too many of us get married to our identities as a veteran. Yeah. And so as, as a PJ, uh, we were, you know, shooters, if you will. And so we have these, uh, these t-shirts that we wear at Deliver Fund that say from shooters to computers, because the new weapon is the keyboard. And when I left GWAT, the GWAT didn't miss Nick McKinley. They just replaced me with a smarter, faster, stronger version of me. And so, but, so I wasn't going to continue to have the same level of impact there, but I, there was something that I could do that probably not a whole lot of other people could do where I could make a massive impact on society. And I chose to start fighting the uh, societal predators and, and the people who are child predators and, and, and preying on society. But that's just an example of one thing. I could have done any number of things. The point is you decide what to do and then you execute on that thing. Yes, it is. You know, <clears throat> I think having a purpose allows you to take action and taking action uh, uh, kind of uh, allows you to to either reinforce, re-engage that purpose or retarget that purpose, right? And, and kind of make those adjustments. But you're never going to make adjustments by sitting back and thinking about that problem or thinking about what you might do if you had X resources or Y resources or Z resources. You have to go, okay, I have A, B, C resources. What can I do right now to move an inch forward? What were you, um, when, when and how did you first discover, okay, this is a problem that I want. This is a problem. This is a problem I want to tackle. This is a problem I am uniquely suited to tackle. The kind of the first time I'd ever heard about human trafficking, I actually was working with a, uh, a, a backpack design company called Mystery Ranch. Uh, and there's a, they have a pack called the Rats Pack. And I, I'm the one who designed the Rats Pack for Dana Gleason, who, who owns Mystery Ranch. And, and 
he was talking a lot about the the manufacturing process and why they manufacture most of their stuff in the U.S. And he started talking about you know the the, the child labor and the child slavery that was happening overseas. And I didn't really think a whole lot about it. Fast forward, I ended up uh, working for a private personnel recovery startup uh, when I first left the Air Force because I was waiting for CIA clearances and like the the very long process to happen. And we ended up with a personnel recovery case that ended up having connections into a case that the FBI was working. And uh, it was the first time I had an FBI agent say, oh, this is probably human trafficking. And it was a, it was a case uh, that was happening in Mexico. And so, okay, kind of put that in, in my, uh, in, put that in my brain about something like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to check into that later. I don't really know what that is. And then when I got to the CIA, I started to just see human trafficking everywhere because you're, you're mixed in with the local populace. You're doing operations on the street. You're in the Marcazes and you, you, you're seeing the, the children in cities overseas who are begging in the center of the road and, and, and then getting intelligence briefs on how those children are both lookouts for the bad guys, but they're also being trafficked by the bad guys, right? And that, that you've got people who are taking the money that you're giving them, so don't give them money. And it was uh, it was all of this this trafficking information that was coming at me that I I just it, I assumed that somebody somewhere was was solving this problem, right? Somebody had that ball and was running it to the end zone. And then it wasn't until I was in southern Afghanistan, I was in Helmand province, uh, running a team down there, you know, one of the most dangerous places in the world. We had uh, a primarily counter narcotics and, and counterterrorism mission. And we ended up with what I like to call smoking gun intel on a human trafficker. It was it was uh, somebody told us and we had some video of somebody who was selling children across the AFPAC border had sold a child to a bomb maker who had used the child to test a bomb. And so I was working with the JSOC counterpart at the time and we wrote that up and we're trying to figure out where, like, who do we send this to, right? Because narcotics information, it's pretty clear where that goes. Terrorism information, pretty clear where that goes. Weapons proliferation, it's got a place to go. Human trafficking information, just couldn't find any place. And so we started working through the system. And unlike the military, where there's kind of a, a ceiling that you hit as far as what you can access, well, what's above that ceiling is the CIA and CIA NSA level access, right? So there's nothing that you couldn't access. And I bounced all over the intelligence community, law enforcement, uh, military, trying to find where it was we would put this information and ultimately the it was kind of all for naught um we were told that that wasn't a mandatory reporting requirement and there's no there's no mission set uh to back up the collection of that information and that made me curious and so i started reading i started talking to as many people as i could and ultimately decided that there was a there was a problem that i was going to take a stab at trying to solve do you have a thesis as to why yes there wasn't anybody already solving this problem? Yeah, it's the defense industrial complex. There is no bucket of money that is being put towards creating the F-35 to fight human trafficking. It's I, it's that simple. If there was, let's call it 10, $20 billion available in the counter human trafficking bucket, 
and there were uh, there were requirements for companies to fill. Well, DynCorp and Boeing and Blackbird, and they you can guarantee they would be trying to get a chunk of that money by creating solutions for this problem. So ultimately, it's because Congress has not created right with the power of the purse. They've not created the bucket of money to solve this problem, not in any meaningful way anyway. And the executive branch has not made this a priority. It's that simple. How did we get the big bucket of money to fight narcotics? Reagan declared war on drugs. We ended up with an entire agency to do that. And the way I like to help people think about this is uh, you think about the Drug Enforcement Agency. We spend double digit billions of dollars a year fighting the war on drugs, which is not going well. And we have an entire agency dedicated towards fighting the war on drugs, yet 90% of drugs are legal. So we're fighting the illicit sale of legal commodities. We have a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which we spend billions of dollars a year fighting the illicit sale of the legal commodities of alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. 100% of human slavery is illegal per the 13th Amendment, and we don't have anybody who has the ball on that issue. There's no counter human trafficking agency, right? There's, there's great men and women in the FBI who are doing the best they can. Great men and women in, in Department of Homeland Security doing the best they can. State and local law enforcement doing the best they can. But we don't have a counterterrorism center for human trafficking the same way that we do these other issues. And so I think that's why there's, there's no place to send the intel is because there's nobody to read the intel. Nobody, nobody whose job it is to be a counter-human trafficking analyst who's thinking strategically and, and, and putting things together the way that we do on other illicit commodity issues. Yeah, that's it's 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 hard for me to understand. It's hard for me to wrap my my brain around it because, as you know, I've become animated on, on this issue and and some of the other issues. I mean, it's probably all one issue, but I've been trying to figure this out because I grew up, you know, being told that, being taught, reinforced from everywhere in in society, from school to church to family to community, that slavery is wrong, slavery mm-hmm. is bad. The United States of America. Um, and, you know, uh, Enlightenment England led the way on, uh, post-Enlightenment England led the way on defeating the global slave trade. So mm-hmm. I, I grew up and lived a good chunk of my adult life thinking that we had defeated the, the global slave trade. Now, obviously, I'm not naive. I know that there are, there are, are countries where those, some of that, those things are happening and, and, and places that are bad places where bad people are doing bad things. I understand I'm not naive on that front. I've been to some of those countries, but what I didn't understand and what I'm trying to wrap my brain around right now is just how systemic this is globally. And then you combine it with, with what, what you said, which is there, there's no American president who has declared war on this. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, Oh, we, we already defeated it and we don't do it here, but we buy the clothes we go on the porn websites, like, you know, we're, we're the customers here for this, yes. you know, as, as citizens, even the ones that aren't actively doing those things, we're, we're, we're the customers. And so, um, so th- that's been this, this kind of 
uh, beginning of this journey that I've been on, like, I, I got to figure this out. I got to figure out what what is going on and like, how do we actually stop it? And enter and, you. And, and it's very simple to explain. And it took us a while to figure this out. Uh, but when you look at child predators and societal predators, when I was growing up, when you were growing up, it was it was always again kind of pre mass distribution of the internet and these broadband microcomputers in our pockets that are connected to it that we call cell phones. It usually was there was a creepy guy the other side of town. Everybody knew about him. Everybody kept their kids away from him. That was that was kind of what happened. Yeah. Well, what we did by allowing children access to internet connected communications through anything from games to gaming consoles to social media to online games uh, to their the places where they do their homework what we did was we opened up the pandora's box and we gave every predator in the country access to every single child who's online so it became a sales funnel and a numbers game it to make the math easy right human traffickers know that they have to talk to 100 14 year old girls to get 50 to respond to get 25 to actually have a conversation with them to get 10 to have a deep conversation with them to get five to agree to meet them to get one to show up so they're playing a numbers game and what that means for them that one person that they can now exploit is over $90,000 a year of tax-free income. So it pencils for them very well. Now, how much money did they have to spend to get that one 14-year-old girl? Nothing. They just needed a smartphone, which they can get for free, and access to the internet, which they can get for free. And a really twisted moral sense that allows them to exploit another person. And then it's a 14-year-old, so very easy to manipulate, very easy to convince that 14-year-old to do what they want them to do. And now they've, they've caused changes in that 14-year-old's brain where now that 14-year-old into being 15, into being 16, into being 22 will do whatever that trafficker tells them to do. In fact, they actually will actually come back and start participating in the business uh, as, of what traffickers will call a bottom. So it's a it's it's an online issue. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children found that in a five year period, they had an eight hundred and forty six percent increase in suspected child trafficking cases. Well, the big question is why? Well, that's right around about the time they saw that explosion is right around when the iPhone hit and the Facebook app hit. So we we know why it happened. The question is, what do we do? do about it. And I get asked a lot uh, by especially former soft guys who who want to come work for Deliver Fund and they want to go kick a door and rescue a child. And uh, no, like if the only people who can do that legally are law enforcement with badges and guns. And if you don't have a badge and a gun in the authority of the state, you cannot do that legally. You're actually committing felonies. But what we can do is make sure that all 18,000 of those law enforcement jurisdictions across the United States all have access to the same data to make it easy for law enforcement to find those societal predators. 
And now what we're doing is we're, we've, we've been working with industry for the last year, trying to help banks and Airbnb and all of these different entities actually clean traffickers off of their platforms. And now we've released an app that allows your everyday parent to check the people in their network who have access to their child for potential connections to human trafficking activity. Or the 17-year-old girl who met somebody online and gets their phone number can plug it into our app and see if there's a potential connection to human trafficking activity. So, so that from, a, from a thesis and strategy standpoint, I want you to imagine a forest with a clearing just outside the forest. And if we take a really bright light and we shine it into the forest, well, we'll get some light and we'll expose some things in the forest, but then all the trees cause shadows. And the trees are society. And so the bad guys can hide in those shadows. So what we are doing from a strategy perspective by releasing this app is we're giving everybody in the forest a flashlight. So now everybody, I mean, I do mean everybody, can help us find who the human traffickers and the child predators are. All right, so I, I, I want to get into that and 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 how it all works and and what you've been doing, but I I, I don't want to skip too far ahead. I, I want hmm. so I want to jump a little bit back. So what was the what was the initial vision for for Deliver Fund, mm -hmm. and what were the first steps that you took uh, when you when you saw this problem and you said I'm going to tackle it? The initial vision was this is a this is a terrible problem. Somebody's got to do something about it. I think I've got a group of people who could help me out. I'm going to go recruit them and I'm going to figure out how to fund it. And we're going to, we're going to find solutions to this problem. It, it was, it was that simple. We didn't know what the solutions were. Nobody knew what the solutions were outside of the law enforcement side of it. But outside of that, nobody knew what the solutions were. So we knew that we had to go actually learn. We had to get involved in human trafficking cases on the street to figure out what it is that we needed to do in, in order to start solving this problem at scale. I knew there would be a technology solution. I just didn't know what that technology solution would look like or what it would be. How did you know that? And how did you mm. know to identify those, those initial team members? You said, these are the people I need. I don't know what the solution is going to be, but I know it's going to be in this general direction. How did you know that? So that's a good question. Uh, and I think that's confusing to a lot of people. And it's a part of my background that I didn't, I, I usually don't get into. But when I was at the, at the CIA, I got to be part of uh, a very small kind of experimental unit running around in a country overseas self-contained. And so we did our own analysis. So I actually got sent to a, call it analyst light course, uh, to the, to the, the Palantir analysis course. Um, I, uh, I got to see firsthand how important technology was in the fight against terrorism. So I was doing sensor installs. We were doing analysis. We were doing a lot of our own ELINT collection. We were doing our own actions. Uh, it was a completely self-contained experiment to see, okay, if we can build these teams, how fast can they move against the enemy? That was, that was the thesis at the agency. And the reality is it worked extremely well. Uh, then it, so well that it kind of got me promoted and I no longer was on that team and I had to go to another country and, and take that country over as the country team leader. So I got to see firsthand how important technology was. So I figured that if 
technology was really what was moving the needle in the fight against terrorism, it was what was going to be moving the needle in the fight against human trafficking. The problem was, again, you got this defense industrial complex that has uh, properly aligned incentives and financial incentives to create those technological uh, technological tools. You don't have that on the human trafficking side, so we had to figure out how we were going to do that and then put ourselves in a position to learn. You see, that's the that's the biggest problem. Uh, a friend of mine who was a, the senior scientist at San Diego National Laboratories once told me that he said, Nick, uh, education is really important. This is a guy with multiple PhDs, right? One of the top scientists in our country. He said, education is important, but you don't have knowledge if you don't have experience. So in, I could read all the human trafficking books all day long. It didn't matter. We needed to actually go to where the human trafficking was and get involved in those cases, which meant that we were going to start equipping, training, and advising law enforcement. And we so we started doing that just with one law enforcement department and then two and then started working with Homeland Security. And now from a training perspective and, and law enforcement officers uh, or law enforcement uh, in our platform, we've got over 600 law enforcement agencies spread across the United States that have all either taken our training or we've uh, we've actively worked with. That's how we learned what we needed to in order to start advancing on the the technology solutions. What uh, what is it about your kind of like mindset and approach that makes you open to uh, all of these? solutions, right? Because like, I, I could just see somebody who, you know, was, was, had a, had a military career like yours, had an intelligence career like yours, door kicker, shooter, want to go do all the cool stuff, did all the cool stuff, but you still, you have this, I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to track this kind of like mindset where you're just, it just seems like you're very solutions oriented, kind of regardless of, of, like, so you're, you're at a, you're B oriented. You don't really care how, how it gets there. That's exactly right. And, yeah. and I think it's, uh, well, one part of it is I'm just a huge nerd. I mean, yeah, I might've done all that cool stuff, but at the end of the day, I'm a, I'm kind of a huge nerd and I look at life in general and I try to look at all aspects of life through a first principles lens. If you're familiar with uh, the first principles concepts of physics. So you find the that you find the reason why something is happening and then you build from there. So a great example is I'm sitting here in the chair and this is a, this is an exercise I run my, my staff through and, and thinking and learning how to think about things through a first principles lens. I'm sitting here in a chair. Why am I sitting here in a chair? Well, because of gravity. That's why I'm sitting here in a chair. So gravity is the very first thing that I have to start with from a thought process in order to build things out. Took that into my pararescue experience where I was kind of known as a ropes guy. And, you know, when I first started pararescue, it was steel carabiners and these big half inch ropes. And it was just this, I mean, you needed a fire truck to move everything. Well, PJs and moving in, in two man teams don't really have that much capability to carry weight. And so I started looking at the, what it is we were trying to accomplish and then what it took to accomplish that, not the biggest, heaviest rope because it was the biggest, heaviest rope, which was, I think my, uh, especially when I was a PJ instructor, that was my predecessor's mindset. 
It was, no, what is, what is it that we actually need to accomplish the mission? Well, that means we have to think foundationally about what the mission is. We do not need a rope that can pick up a tank. We need a rope that can pick up a couple of people. Okay, well, now let's start downsizing everything. And so I started implementing these very skinny ropes and regular climbing aluminum carabiners and, and, and things like that. And now all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, we just reduced the weight, which meant that we could move faster, which increased our chances of mission success. So by always looking at what is the outcome that you want, and, and, and a lot of people say, don't get focused on the outcome, focus on the process. I completely disagree. You only focus on the process if you have established a process that works. If you know the outcome, but you don't know what the process is, well, you have to be hyper self-aware and, and organizationally aware as you march towards that outcome so that you can pivot and get leaner and faster and meaner as you, as you approach what it is that you're trying to do. And then when you get there, having a very, very difficult conversation with yourself to say, okay, you've arrived. Did you do it in the best way? What would you do different? And then start building processes off of that. So I, I'm a very outcome oriented person, mission focused person. Uh, I know what it is I want to accomplish and I'm not afraid to admit that I made a mistake on that path and am willing to acknowledge that mistake, learn from that mistake because it's not a failure unless you fail to learn. So if you learned something from it, okay, well, you learned how not to do it or you learned maybe a way that you could do it better. And then that takes you to the next point and the next point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, when you're doing an after action correctly, um, you're, you're, you're just observing the, the things that happened during the course of the process. And if the goal was mm -hmm. achieved, that's great. And then you're just looking at ways that you either can, should, or don't need to adjust, but your the, the lens through which you're looking is not, it, it's critical of the things it needs to be critical of and not critical of the things that it doesn't need to be critical of. So you right. don't need to, it doesn't need to be personal. Like, Oh man, I, I really screwed that up. Like I'm, I'm an idiot. It's like, well, no, I could have done that element better or faster or more efficiently. So how do I action that next time to iterate on it, to see if I can actually do that better, faster, or more efficiently. Right. Which is why execution is so important why you can get analysis paralysis and, and never actually learn any of those lessons because you never any, ever, ever did anything. I had a, uh, again, young vet reach out to me. He was said, oh, I've taken all these classes. I've done all these things. Which classes do you think I should take next? And I was like, why, why are you continuing to take classes? You've got this thing you want to do. Go do that. Well, I don't think I need to know everything that I need in order to execute on that. And which my reply was, I, I promise you, you do not know everything that you need to know in order to execute on that. That's why you need to go start executing is so that you can learn those lessons and you can actually learn what it is that you're going to need to accomplish your goal. Because if your goal is big enough and you're truly doing something that nobody's done before, or you're doing something in a way that nobody's done before, there isn't a well-established path. Nobody wrote the book on that. You are in the process of writing that book. So um, how did you start to build build these uh, solutions out? Like what, what was the first step? What were the first couple of things that you that you did and and like and how did you optimize? 
I would like to tell you that there was a a very wise process that I followed, but the reality was uh, I had no money. I was funding the whole thing out of uh, what was left of a retirement account. I was uh, really nebulous on what the plan was. I knew I knew the outcomes we wanted to achieve, but I had no idea how we were going to get there. And so I just started going to different people that I knew and saying, "Hey." Um, Here's, here's what I think needs to happen. Do you want to join me? And it was really that simple. I couldn't compensate anybody. It was just, it was all about the mission. And one of the first people I approached, uh, actually the first person I approached is my co-founder, Sean Fenema. And I had a, a mentor of mine once tell me that every maverick, of which I am definitely one, needs a mechanic. And Sean is the mechanic. Uh, without him, the jet never would have even taken four, much less actually got off the ground. And, and so I approached him and said, Hey, here's what I need. Will you take over some of this IT stuff and, you know, some of this administration pieces so I can go out and figure out how I'm going to connect to different people and, and what's going to happen. And keep in mind, I was still at the agency at the time. So that's very hard to connect with the people that you need to when you're not able to be honest with them about why you've been out of the country for the last six months. Uh, so I just started, I just started asking people, got a lot of no's, uh, didn't take it personally. People weren't saying no because they, they thought I was a terrible human. They were saying no because it wasn't the best fit for them. Okay. Well, that was, that was not a failure. That was just somebody to cross off the list and go to the next person. And I just continually started figuring out who had the skills, who had the networks that I needed in order to get to the next step. Because I think if you're truly building something unique and, and solving a big enough problem, you have no idea what step three is. You have a fuzzy view of what step two is when you're on step one. And the only way that you're ever going to refine step two and actually figure out what step three is, is to actually try to execute on step two, right? So I, I hate to be overly simplistic about it to people, but it's really, it's really that easy. Are there things I could have done to prepare better? Absolutely. I mean, knowing what I know now, I would have done things completely different. And what has taken us 10 years would have only took taken us two. But the only reason that I know that is because I started executing and, and started making mistakes. You have, you have those 10 years of experience to tell you that if you had those 10 years of experience, you know you could have done it in two, which just you just spin yourself in circles getting right. mad about that. Um, so where do I take this here? So um, what were the first few? So what I guess, yeah, what was step two? What were the first few successes where where it really started to come into place like, oh, okay. This is what we're building. This is how we're going to gather the intelligence. This is how we're going to supply law enforcement with the intelligence. When did it start to fall into place of like, okay, we're clicking here. We've got a system. We've got some momentum. So it started when it was myself and uh, a former uh, former G Squadron, so so Delta G Squadron operator, and my co-founder. And it was really just us. Uh, so Sean. And I had talked to somebody in ministry who gave me $5,000, which to me was huge, absolutely huge. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got, I got a $5,000 budget. This is amazing. 
And I, I, through a friend of a friend, a former law enforcement SWAT officer, put me in touch with a narcotics officer who put me in touch with the person in the city who was supposed to be doing human trafficking. So I meet up with him. And at this point, we had no idea what the counterintelligence threat looked like from traffickers. So we were playing things by the book from the, from the counterintelligence perspective. And so I, I, I go on a, a car ride with him. I explain the whole thing. And I mean, I think he thought I was crazy. It's just, he was just so under-resourced. He had no other options. And I think he just was like, fine, I'll take this guy. But he's like, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to give you a burner number. Uh, you know, we actually arranged uh, dead drops of thumb drives for information under a bench. Well, that led to the biggest case of his career. I got him promoted. And then he was like, oh, well, this actually works. Let's do that again. And then he started introducing me to other law enforcement officers who started introducing to other law enforcement officers who started asking for training. And then we started bringing law enforcement officers in for training. Uh, and so I was our first analyst. I was our first trainer. I kind of like did all of the pieces. And I think that's really important when you're building something, because if you're always going to need a team, the solopreneur does not exist. You're always going to need a team of some of, of some sort. And I do believe a fundamental premise of leadership is that you should not ask something, somebody to do something you yourself are not willing and capable of doing. So I did all of those different pieces. I mean, I even learned, I even learned some, some uh, to code a little bit. And as we started working with the law enforcement officers, they're like, oh, they see me doing all these different pieces that started to develop my reputation with them, which meant that they felt comfortable introducing me to their friends in different jurisdictions who are also doing this. And then we started to kind of see, okay, we know now how to work with law enforcement. We still have no idea what that looks like on the tech side, but we at least now know how to work with law enforcement. So I started hiring analysts. At that point, we kind of uh, figured out kind of how to raise some money. We still didn't really have much, uh, but I started hiring some analysts, started putting analysts into those roles to free me up to go, because now we're at step two, right? So step one, we, we found, we started an organization. Step two, we, we figured out how to get in the fight and, and actually be effective with law enforcement. Okay, well now step three, I've got to go figure what step three even is. So I hired people to take over step two. I taught them how to do it. Uh, they started running with it and then it was, okay, well, now what? Now how do we start thinking about scale? So I started reaching out to technology companies that had already dabbled in this a little bit and started working with them started kind of trying to get them to to build their products up to where they needed to be but the reality is they just couldn't keep up with how fast we were moving so then i figured that well i now need to either start i need to start creating our own tech stack which we we did uh but we now actually need to start building our own technologies and then started hiring engineers and and then the thing just started to started to catch fire so i mean what principles were you using i mean and what tech were you using to provide this intelligence at step two, you know, for these first few case studies that were going well? Uh, we got really good at Google dorking. Uh, we got a couple of, a couple of subscriptions to some uh, open source intelligence platforms and publicly available information platforms that we could afford. Uh, had a phenomenal company called Caseware. Uh, that was a friend of mine was starting. And so I kind of combined forces with them and helped uh, there were some former FBI agents and helped them understand how they could make changes to make their their 
their platform more useful to somebody like me. Yeah. Uh, and then actually started buying that. I actually, uh, the, the first dollar they ever made is hanging on their wall with my signature on it. Uh, right. And so just started figuring out who was doing what and started trying things. Um, actually got in bed with I, IBM for a little while. They were a great partner for a short period of time, but we outgrew their platform uh, using Analyst Notebook and and just kept moving until we figured out until until we figured out how to start learning the lessons that we needed to learn to start building technology. So when it, it when you look at the fight against human trafficking, because you know we've already talked about how it's primarily online when we when we talk about westernized countries and specifically the United States, that meant that it was going to be a big data play. So I had to start figuring out how to harvest how to harvest data because I knew that we were going to need the data in order to in order to inform the technologies that we were going to build. So it was just, again, always with the eye on the prize, but knowing that, okay, well, if we're going there, I don't know what the technology platform looks like, but I know that the technology platform is going to need some data behind it because technology without data is worthless. So let's start executing on figuring out that problem. Yeah. So you were basically doing you're doing uh, like long division. You're doing it longhand. Yes. You, you were doing it the, the long way because that's what you had available. And by putting those pieces together, that's how you would be able to understand how to systematize that, do it at scale mm -hmm. and make it more efficient. But it required you to really get in and do all of that. Yeah, it's not analog because it was digital, but it's kind of like you almost did it like the analog way in order to, to be able to do it the, the more digital way. Oh, that, that is 100% correct. We started, uh, and really the first case that I did, I had nothing but a laptop and an internet, an internet access, didn't have any specialized tools. So I was still doing things old school agency way, right? Very similar to where you get dropped off in a country, you go buy a laptop off the, you know, randomly out of the local Marcos and go get an internet connection and start doing your stuff. So I was doing it that way. And then as I learned what was useful, I mean, it was the first analysis case I did probably took five or six days for me just working, you know, 10 plus hours a day to get that all done. Now we can do that same thing in, in minutes. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, but that's what it took to get there. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, it's funny. You're, you're, you're an interesting guessed in this sense because the 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 weight the heaviness of the problem that you're solving is very heavy but mm -hmm. you you went about it in, a, in an extremely fundamental way so very fundamental way um i don't know if people are gonna be able to hear this with this new mic setup i have a new can you hear the dog i can hear your dog yeah so, what kind of dog you got we have two mini golden doodles that one right there is uh particularly uh small and loud uh, you can't hear the other one because the other one used to try to tell him to be quiet by barking at him. Uh, my wife knows I'm recording, so she's running in um, to, to grab him. But um, I'm in a new downstairs setup now. Um, so it's it's weird, right? Because you have the weight of the, the heaviness of the problem that you're solving. Um, but the, but you're operating from first principles and you're operating from very fun, a fundamental approach that, that really anyone can can learn. You know, if, if you're doing this to fight what you're fighting, um, some transitioning veteran can can do this to 
whatever venture it is that they want to do, right? So I don't want to dismiss either party here. I don't want to dismiss the, the the weight of what you're doing, nor do I want to dismiss somebody else's dream that isn't as heavy of a, of a cultural or societal weight, right? But yeah. those principles, it's a really, really important thing, I think, for people to understand that you have to execute the basics in order to understand how to condense those basics and make them more efficient or create mm-hmm. efficiency or even understand if you can create efficiencies. You you may have you may have discovered that you couldn't do that, but you would still would have had to have done that work to understand. But with you, you add the weight. Were you thinking, oh man, this is taking six days. I need to speed this up for the people that I'm saving. Or how did you how did you balance or how did you integrate your kind of the 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 more uh emotional mission from the day-to-day work that you were doing i i think on the emotional mission piece i mean being a pj being a you know an operator at the cia uh got when i left the cia was on i was leaving after my 30th combat deployment so i've gotten pretty good at that compartmentalization piece uh for the soffets especially listening to this you're not as good as you think it will eventually come catch up with you so you do need to get in front of it but but i i in dealing with such a heavy a heavy topic i very much understand that tears do not help victims of child predatory behavior or or anybody who's been preyed upon by a societal predator tears don't help them cold calculating strategy does on the battlefield, if you've got somebody with with bullet holes in them, I don't care if it's your best friend, you know, feeling sorry for them is not going to help them. Putting tourniquets on them is what's going to help them, right? Plugging those holes is what's going to help them. And so I, I find a lot of hope in actually doing the things that are leading to solutions. So while that was on a, a one-on-one basis, if you will, while I was a when I was a PJ and and kind of a many-on-one basis when I was at the CIA. It's now going to a level of scale that makes me very hopeful. And the reason why is because the whole purpose of us working with law enforcement is in the way that we did and, and still do. I mean, I've got, I've got two analysts right now that are actually on active law enforcement operations somewhere here in the United States, helping them with some very large human trafficking cases. So we still do that work, but... I get hopeful because I know that it's all just steps towards learning what we need to do so that we're not just helping one victim, we're helping them all. We're not just going after one predator, we're going after them all. We're not just empowering one person, we're empowering them all. And so that's, I, I tend to think in these, like how can we help as many people as possible as 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 fast as possible? And and I think by by looking at it through that lens, too many of us get get uh, we get married to who we are by the things that we do. I'm a door kicker, therefore I always need to be a door kicker because that's my identity. Well, no. Why are you a door kicker? Well, you're a door kicker because you're trying to solve a problem, and or somebody's trying to solve a problem, and you're the tool that they're using to solve the problem. Uh, you're not a door kicker. You're a shooter, but you're actually not even a shooter. You're a professional problem solver because you solve problems in real time, right? That's, that's the, the mentality. It's like, okay, well, if I am going to, if I'm going to be a good shooter, that actually means that I need to be a good problem solver 
who has skills. So I'm going to go focus on the skill of problem solving as well as those kinetic skills. So if I'm going to solve this human trafficking problem and I'm going to make a big impact on it, I need to have some skills. I mean, I even went back to grad school to, to learn skills, but I also need to get really immersed in the basics of that problem. And this is something you find from the JSOC community a lot. And I know you've, you've interviewed a number of those guys. I got the fortune of being embedded with a, a B squadron somewhere overseas. And one of the B squadron sergeant majors who was running us, you know, we were on the range almost every day. Uh, and they were making me a better shooter because even though I was an agency guy and I was pretty darn good, I was not up to their level. And he said, Nick, what makes us better than most is the fact that we focus on having absolute brilliance in the basics. And that is just another, that is just a really fancy way of saying that they're thinking through the first principles and they're applying those and getting really good at those so that they don't have to think about them anymore as they advance towards solving these problems. So when it took me multiple days to do my first analysis case, well, the next one only took a day. And then the next thing you know, we're knocking it down to mere hours. And then we're teaching law enforcement to do the same thing. Okay, now we have all the signal we need to know that that works. We'll iterate and refine, but what we're doing works, time to go to the next step and not just get stuck there and trying to make it perfect. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, it's back to what you were thinking, what you were saying about being being outcome driven, right? Like that, when you're outcome driven, the tactics are simply the tools at your disposal to use in order to achieve that goal or to, 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 to achieve that outcome. Right. So like, you know, it, it, that's, I had a, um, totally not even it's, it's relevant, but entirely different. I had an, I am currently engaged in an interpersonal conflict with somebody. I need something. I know what the outcome is that I need. Mm -hmm. And I know that the communications I'm having with that person, but there it's driving me crazy. It's making me very angry each time I have to communicate with that person to get this thing that I want. And this thing that I want is very important to me. Mm -hmm. I have to remind myself the outcome is getting that thing that I need. The outcome is uh, dr being driven by that outcome determines how I treat this person. Even though I really want to treat this person poorly, I'm choosing mm -hmm. not to treat this person poorly because they have something that, you know, that, that I, I need to get, you know, and it's like, it, when you remind yourself what the outcome is, that you're, that you're working towards, it will affect the work that you're doing. And if you're focused on only a small set of tools and not the, the broad range of tools that are available to not just to you, but the broad range of tools that are available to achieve that outcome, then you're, you're limiting yourself, you're limiting the options and you're ultimately, you know, in your case, you're ultimately making it um, a more dangerous place for the people out there who you're trying to save. And I think you also have to have a level of humility to understand that whatever you launch, I don't care how much time and effort and research you put into it, it is at best 40%. It is at best 40% from the moment you launch it. And understand that and be okay with it. And yeah. know that, okay, well, no, you know, military says no, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Well, nothing in business, no business plan survives first contact with the customer. So yes. as long as you are hyper self-aware and organizationally aware, and you are listening to your customers and you are listening to the feedback you get, and you're not taking it personally, you're learning to implement what matters and get rid of the stuff that doesn't, 
that will just accelerate your growth. And I wasn't always good at that. I'll tell you, there was a time when I was a young PJ that I let the, uh, the bridges I burned light my way into the future. That was pretty stupid of me to do that. And so, you know, we all, we all mature and, and get better and we don't get focused on the things that we did wrong in the past. We focus on where we're going and what we can do right in the future and then not getting upset about the things that we can't control. You can't control this person who's causing you problems. So you, you go with it. And it's the same thing for military transitioning in the civilian world. I hear so many military veterans who get so frustrated with the civilian way of thinking and the civilian way of doing things. And, and I'm like, bro, you're, you're in their world, not the other way around. If they were coming in the military acting the way that they were, you'd have a right to be frustrated, but you're going into their world. You're going into their company. You need to assimilate. Uh, with their culture and figure out how to drive improvements from within, not by just complaining about the fact that things aren't the way that you want them to be. Be like water. Um, any relevant anecdotes uh, around starting to get funding that would be helpful for people to hear about? Yes. Uh, consider a 99% failure rate really, really good success. Uh, just understand that you are going to have to talk to, unless you came from the right family or you've got the right networks by some, you know, magical, uh, magical set of circumstances. If that's not you and assume it's not assume that you're going to have to get 99 no's to get one. Yes. And that's actually something that I encourage people to do is as they go out, give it your best effort but try to get a hundred no's. And only after you've gotten a hundred no's, do you have a right to say this isn't going to work? Well, what they'll find is that by trying to get a hundred no's, one, it does two things. Psychologically, it primes you for success because you're not concerned about defeat. So if you get a no, that's what you were expecting. Learn from it and move on and, and go to the next one. Uh, but what you find is that on your way to a hundred no's, you actually get to the point where you're never going to get a hundred no's because finally people start telling you yes. And you start learning what tells what works. And then, then you actually start getting money and revenue coming in. And, uh, and then you're not even trying to get a hundred no's anymore. You're hiring people and telling them go out and try to get a hundred no's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and why did you choose to make this a nonprofit? Because there's no, there's nobody to pay for what we were doing back then is number one. Uh, number two, now that we're actually, uh, we're still donor supported. Uh, so anybody listening to this, like if this resonates with you, pitch in, help out. Um, we need the help. Uh, so does everybody. And it's not with us other organizations like the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, but do something. There are some people who can give $5,000 a month. Some people can only give $5 a month. Doesn't matter. Just do what you can. But that is what funded the, that is what funded the freedom for the cases that we've worked where those victims have been rescued. Um, that is what funded the 100% conviction rate that we have on the cases we've been involved in that have gone to court. Most of them go to a plea deal. Um, so just because we're now with the app and things like that, starting to 
starting to generate some revenue to help make those donor dollars go farther doesn't mean we don't need those. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is because it protects the mission. So the reason that we don't have robust solutions for human trafficking in the past and child predatory behavior in the past is because nobody has been focused on solving that problem. And be, if there's not a large total addressable market for an investor, they're not going to invest in solutions that solve that problem. They're going to involve, invest in solutions with a large TAM. Well, if you're a nonprofit and you have an IRS charter that says that you have to stay between these left and right lateral limits, now you've protected the mission. And so that's why. It's a really smart way to do it. Take that initial problem that you that you saw in the system and use it to your advantage. Mm -hmm. um, okay, T tell us about the app and what it does and how you built it. Sure. So we we I told you that you need data in order to inform technological development. So we've been collecting data for really since 2015. Uh, but a very robust effort for the last four years. So we currently have the largest clean human trafficking database on the planet. We also have the largest database of commercial sexual activity uh, on the planet. Uh, I mean, we're talking billions of points of interest and, and double, even more billions of data points within the system. Traditionally, we've only made that data available to law enforcement. Now we're making it available to everybody through the app. And so if if you think about human trafficking as that sales funnel that we talked about earlier, the one thing that human traffickers have to do is communicate with their customer just like any other business. They advertise their product, which is a human trafficking victim online, but they don't give you a means of communication. Well, they can't ever do business. So we have been harvesting those means of communication for a long time. And we've put them all in one queryable database. So these are phone numbers and email addresses that have direct ties to commercial sex advertisements online. So if you have, say, a, I don't know, a nanny applicant and that nanny who's going to be around your kid, their phone number pops up positive in a commercial sex advertisement, you've got a potential problem. It doesn't mean that the nanny is a human trafficker. It just means that there is a connection and it's worth you continuing to investigate. So that's that's what we're doing by, by putting this, this data in the hands of everybody because the way that child predators, unknown child predators, right? There are child predators amongst us right now who are hurting children. There are traffickers around us who are hurting children and, and selling children. The way they get away with it is by hiding in the shadows. Because there's not enough law enforcement officers, no amount of technology is going to solve the lack of law enforcement manpower. So there's not enough law enforcement officers to go out and arrest every human trafficker and every child predator. So if we put it into the hands of the parents, put it in the hands of the authority figures, well then they can actually screen for potential human trafficking activity and then they can take action and that might be just clicking the report button and tagging that data for uh, deliver fund and law enforcement future use. That might be calling law enforcement. That might just be saying, hey, uh, you can't be around our kid. Either way, the outcome is accomplished, which is preventing human trafficking. It's protecting that child. Yeah, 
democratizing the technologies that that you've developed and and deployed. So obviously it's it's legal. So for for a parent like myself or my wife or mm-hmm. whoever, we we download the app, we have the app, we punch in the soccer coach's phone number and it kicks it kicks back positive like you said. We have three options. There's a mm-hmm. report button within the app. Yes. We can we can call law enforcement ourselves and say, "Hey, we use the Deliver Fund app and and um got this here's like basically we're then supplying intel to them through through the platform or the anonymously anonymously right and then the other one is is um it's just obviously we can make our own our own decisions right it's an interesting right and also let's keep in mind that it might be that that soccer coach's phone number was used by somebody associated with the commercial sex industry or human trafficking 10 years ago yeah. Well, so you might also like run your own phone number. And if your phone number is associated with that activity, that activity is on the internet. We didn't put that out there. We just made it easy for yeah. people to search. So go change your phone number. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, yeah. So, I mean, what would somebody do in that, in that scenario? Well, just change, change your phone number. You, you discover that or, or what dangers are there in reporting something like this to law enforcement and that, is the thing that happened, right? It's the person did, mm-hmm. isn't actually engaging in this activity. Well, like what happens then? So there's no danger at all. Uh, basically, this is just a large neighborhood watch. If you see somebody carrying a TV out of your neighbor's house and you can't see who it is and you call law enforcement, that doesn't mean that that person did anything wrong. That might be your neighbor. It might be the mover that they hired. All that right. does is allow law enforcement to go check it out. And your law enforcement officer says, Hey, somebody saw you carrying a TV and called it in. They're like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there. This, these people are moving. I got hired by the moving company. You're like, okay, thanks. There's, there's, there's nothing, there's no, there's no detriment to that individual. All law enforcement is doing is saying, Hey, we've, we've got a tip. Follow let's go, let's go see if it's, if it's real. And anybody in law enforcement will tell you they get they get everything from people calling them saying that, uh, you know, aliens landed in their backyard all the way to I saw somebody murder somebody. Right. And everything in between. So law enforcement's very used to it. And anybody one of the biggest questions we always get is, what do I do if I suspect human trafficking? You call law enforcement the same way that you would if you suspected drug trafficking or weapons trafficking or somebody murdered somebody. You call law enforcement. You don't you don't call Deliver Fund. You don't call the FBI, you call your law enforcement in your local jurisdiction because that's the that's the first starting point for any criminal case. As you launch this app, what are the immediate kind of and midterm goals? You mentioned 2030 mm-hmm. earlier. Like what what are you hoping this accomplishes immediately? What are you hoping this accomplishes in the midterm? And do you have some thesis on what that next step three might might be? The immediate hope is that the unknown child predators out there no longer have access to the kids that they were targeting. That's that's the immediate one. And that and that is not just people in their immediate right in a parent's immediate network. That's also the phone number that your child just got passed through the chat feature in Roblox that you're trying to figure out whether or not you want them to be able to communicate with. My default would always be no. But should you choose to say yes, the minimum thing you want to do is run it through our app. And we have some other partners that are going to be coming out, integrating our data and are going to be solving those types of problems as well. 
So that's, that's near term. We want to protect our children. We want to protect society. Uh, midterm is we really start to see a bunch of bright spots on the map on who the unknown societal predators are so that we can get law enforcement to open investigations and action them. The, the kind of longer term is we can actually highlight for politicians what a problem this is so we can drive some policy change and you don't actually don't need the deliver funds of the world. Uh, that that's ultimately we want what we want to do. So within the app itself, you will see features that and there won't be any upcharges or anything like that. There will be new features and data streams on the future roadmap that that march us towards those long term goals. It's a really smart way to approach it. Um, what's the app called? It's called HT Safeguard. Uh, so you can. Google that, or you can Google that, or you can just search that in the app store. Uh, there'll be a, a link to it in the show notes. And then you can also just search deliver fund that's deliver fund F U N D in the app store. And you'll see the, you'll see the app there as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll link, we'll link it. We'll link obviously all, all of that stuff. Um, okay. So we're getting close to time here. I will. I want to ask a couple questions about um, citizenship and responsibility. Mm. Um, and you know, I could ask you, like, hey, you know, what can people do? People can give give money, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll link that out. People can download the app, participate in this. We'll link that out. But as citizens, at a, at a broader level as we start to understand this and other problems, what are things that you see people doing right now in America that we should stop doing? And what are some of the things that we're not doing that we should be doing? Mm -hmm. The number one predictor of whether or not a child will become a victim of a child predator is not having a uh, positive male role model in their life. And that goes for both men and women, for both boys and girls. So the number one thing that society can do is comes from dads. Be a good dad. Full stop. That's it. You matter more in your child's life than you could possibly imagine. And that's not to diminish moms. I'm just reporting what the data says. And uh, obviously cohesive family units are the most important, but positive male role models and positive, uh, positive female role models are extremely important. That's number one. Number two is also part of that. When you start talking about societal predators, especially in America, you're talking about a problem created by men. So men commoditizing women and girls is what creates this problem. And that is going to be very unpopular opinion in the veteran community, but it starts with pornography. Uh, You know, all the like webcam stuff and all that. There's a lot of those folks who are human trafficking victims or will very quickly become human trafficking victims. Uh, And you're also programming your mind that, that that person on the other side of the screen is a commodity and, and you're just slowly advancing the ball down the field towards the commoditization, which is where you're actually purchasing them. If you are a man and you are, well, which let's face it, it's going to be primarily men. 
uh, and you are actually engaging in the commercial sex industry, and you've done that more than twice, there is almost a hundred percent chance that you have fed money into the pocket of a human trafficker. Like you are participating in human trafficking and child exploitation. So don't stick your head in the sand about that. People listening to this who uh, who are engaging in those types of, types of activities. And that brings it all the way around to being a good dad. Dads and moms, but need to watch their behavior and train their sons to respect women for all their differences, right? To respect them and not to commoditize them. So the snap-on poster in the garage, this dating myself, right? That's uh that's not acceptable anymore. Right? The 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 crass comments about the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders in front of your 10-year-old son, that's that's not acceptable anymore. And so we and, and this is primarily speaking to 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 men uh, and especially veterans, we need to hold each other to a higher standard and we need to model for society what that standard looks like. That's what we can do as society that is a look that is more strategic that will actually end this. Yeah, well said. I'm glad you went there. It is <clears throat> yeah, we need to take responsibility for the actions because it's an it's it's something that gets thrown around all the time, right? Like, oh, take responsibility, especially in our community, right? It's like right. take responsibility. Uh, be capable, be ready, all of that stuff. Um, and a lot of times we're only thinking about those sort of external facing behaviors. And we don't actually understand that those internal behaviors, first of all, are a little bit more external than we would, than we would like to believe and that we would like to oh, hope yeah. number one, but number two, what that does to you over time. And then you're one citizen and then there's other other dudes that are doing those things that are not supposed to be doing that scales like that's how a cultural shift happens when mm -hmm. we start to take responsibility for the things that we feed our minds our bodies and our souls that's when we start to change the culture we change it from kind of within individually at scale collectively that's right you've got to lead yourself first yeah if you can't lead yourself in the way and, and being the citizen that you want society to have, then how could you possibly lead anybody else? Yeah. Well, it's always funny, right? It's like you, you hear, you know, we've both been around guys like this in the military where, you know, you, you hear the way that they talk about uh, whether it's a celebrity or whether it's, you know, a female troop or whether it's uh, a spouse or whether it's, you know, somebody at the club off base, whatever it is, you hear the way they talk about those women and then, they would never talk about their daughter that way or their wife that way. Or, and, and if you made a joke about somebody like that, that was even remotely close to them, there is a total double standard there. And that kind of tells you everything that you need. I went through that, right? I went through that when I was young. Like I, th I thought that way I did those. I was like, Oh wow. Okay. Now I understand. I understand that, that those behaviors, those internal behaviors had an effect on me and how I operated in the world, how I moved through the world. And mm -hmm. they would affect my wife and daughter if I chose to continue those kinds of behaviors. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So every, every woman is somebody's daughter or sister. Yeah. Yeah. All right. To wrap things up here with our, with our, my, my kind of 
open-ended question that I've been asking to end each episode. Before I do that, um, where do you want to drive? I know we just talked about some links, but where do you want to drive traffic? Where are the top top few places that you want to send send people uh, call to action here? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at the Nick McKinley. Instagram is at the dot Nick, and that's N I C dot McKinley. And everything else, you can either find me on Nick N I C McKinley dot com or deliverfund.org. Right. Link all that out. And okay, so we've obviously covered a lot here and we and we've talked about quite a bit of this already, but but the 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 question we've been ending with is is what is on your heart and what is on your mind for for our community right now? So whether that's a piece of advice, um, something that you just want to get off your chest, something you want to reiterate that we've already spoken about here, what is on your heart and what is on your mind? Two things. First of all, if you are if you're listening to this and you feel lost, it's because you don't have a true north that you're focused on. You need to figure out what that true north is. And I don't mean like a mission to pursue like I'm doing with countering human trafficking or something like that. You've got to find a true north that usually is spiritual. For me, it's Christianity, but you've got to find that. And without that, you will continue to be lost. The second thing is we are called to be quiet professionals, not silent professionals. So if somebody is is doing media, support them. If somebody is is building a podcast like Veteran Made, support them, share their stuff, like their stuff, push that stuff out there. If there are they have a supplement line, buy their supplements. Like the veteran community needs to stop stabbing each other in the back. Because one of the things I've noticed over the last 10 years is there ain't no drama like BroVet drama. And it's got to stop. Everybody needs to start working together. I don't care if that person was a dirtbag at your unit and you didn't like them and they were slow and not a good shooter. It doesn't matter anymore. Put, put, the, put the face on that supports the veteran and supports the veteran community or don't say anything at all, but stop being so negative. That's what I want to get off my chest. I love it. I love it. You're, you're, you're not the, you're not the only one recently who said that. And, um, and I, I agree and, and you have full throated, uh, support from me on that front. And that is one of the missions of, of this endeavor with this podcast is to, is to connect all of us in ways and over things that, that, that we may not have been focused on. Um, and that we can, we can, we can course correct a little bit on, on some of that stuff because we're all out there doing a lot of really cool things. And um, and we should support each other. And 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 part part of support is is correcting. If somebody needs correcting, you know, do it the way that you would want to have it done. You know, to you. To you. Um, Go to them first. You don't need yeah. to blow them up on social media. Go to the yeah. person first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Nick. Sincerely appreciate the time. Um, hope this isn't the last time that that we do this. Um, I'm very excited for this app to launch, and very excited. Um, for, for, uh, these lives to change for the better, um, and for us to start to drive towards some of that policy change that we need. And, um, uh, very excited to put this episode out and, and share some content and, and hopefully drive, drive some traffic your way and, and, uh, help you continue to fight. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. 